I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Conversations. I am Marcelo Brudi. I'm the Chief Risk Officer at City National Bank, October Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and so I'm grateful to be joined by our guest, a foremost expert in all things cybersecurity and a recognized leader in the global law enforcement, intelligence, and business communities. Uh, Throughout his seasoned career, he was a special agent and executive in the FBI, where he held several operational positions nationwide, served as an FBI pilot. He's now the president and CEO of Consortium Networks, which was recently recognized by the CIO Review as one of the most promising enterprise security solutions providers. He also serves as chairman of the board for Thompson Routers Special Services, bringing over 30 years of robust public and private sector experience here today to share with us. It's my pleasure to welcome Tim Murphy. Marcelo, thank you very much. Very, very uh, generous introduction. So uh, let's let's get a little bit of, of background, uh, Tim, on, on you. So uh, cybersecurity is always top of mind for us. So Tim, I'm excited to hear from you today and learn more about your great experience in this space. After graduating from college and prior to your role in the FBI, you were also a police officer and then joined the FBI. What drew you to law enforcement? You know, I, I think as we, as we all grow up, I'm sure we all have our stories of what we want to be. I was fortunate enough that... Uh, you know, I came from a very modest background, so I didn't, I wasn't interested in, in at the time, making a lot of money, um, but I was interested in being an FBI agent. And, and look, so it was something from a young age that, that I wanted to get involved with. And, but, you know, most people don't realize that the FBI is, is normally a second career. The average age of an agent entering on duty is 30 years old. And so you have to work, you know, you have to have the education, you have to work in a number of different jobs and have work experience before you can even apply. So the, the route for me was um, actually to go into law enforcement and get that background. And so it's something I always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great career and I'd do it all over again. Very, very interesting. Right now, uh, as we said, you're the founder and president of Consortium Networks, which provides uh, businesses with the most relevant up-to-date technology information of course, with a focus on, on cybersecurity. Can you tell us a bit more about your company and how did your experience with the FBI has helped you uh, in your decision-making process and your approach at Consortium? Yeah, absolutely. Consortium Networks was um, started by a great entrepreneurial friend of mine. Um, we're partners in the business. And it was, I'm, I'm going to combine both your questions because the idea was taken from his background, 20 years in IT engineering, cybersecurity, and mine in the government. And, and we had some parallels in life. Both, we were very philanthropic. We became fast friends. And then looking at the cybersecurity problem after he and I met, um, we decided um, based on his career and my career, his career meaning he used in the early days put groups of companies together to help solve the early cybersecurity problem. And I'm talking 20 years ago when CISOs really didn't exist at the time. Um, you know, it was IT engineers and they were handling security problems. He put groups together to help solve this problem. We did the very similar thing in, in government after, after 9-11, right, is, is, you know, how do you crowdsource the solution to not having another terror attack happen in this country? And we engaged state and local police, the private sector, and we put groups of 
of people together to share information in real time in this huge network effect, right? We have, we're all in this together. And we decided that same type of mechanism needed to be built for cybersecurity. So um, Larry quit his job at the time. He was actually uh, uh, at the startup of, of CrowdStrike, which is one of the uh, biggest cybersecurity companies today. He quit there and started started this company. And I joined him, I uh, was with him at the beginning and joined him later as president and, and CEO. And um, it's where a cybersecurity actually concierge. In other words, we would come in an organization like yours and, and we help for free. It's all about the same concept he had um, in his early days and I had in the beer was how do we help? How do we get people together? How do we have a CISO network that's very strong? And then as a cyber concierge, we actually had Ritz Carlton come in and train our entire company on how do you deliver concierge service? And that service is we go into an organization, small, medium, and large. We have over a thousand clients many in the Fortune 400, um, where we go in and, and try to understand what they're looking to solve in the cybersecurity. We make connections for them, and it's there's no obligation to buy products from us, although we do sell, sell products. And we've built this great networking organization um, to help crowdsource the cybersecurity problem through networking, through tools, through risk and understanding risk. And that's what we, that's what we do today. And we're growing at, you know, forty-five percent CAGR over the last three years. That's a that's a great story and then quite a um, a different but also innovative approach, as you said, right? Uh, thank you for for sharing that. Now let's talk a little bit about the the current uh, landscape. We are a financial institution, and like many other financial institutions, cybersecurity or fraud are something that uh, we as a team are constantly working on to prevent that city national bank. Can you tell us a bit about the current state of the cybersecurity landscape across the, the banking industry? Yeah, uh, you know, look, look, I want to be perfectly clear. I'm a very optimistic individual, but having been in this space for so long and been, you know, attacked at my desk in the FBI on our unclassified networks by a state sponsor, as far back as 2008. So I understand being a victim. I understand clicking on links that you should not click on that are phishing links. But since then, 2008, 10, 12, 15, 20, 2022, this is, it's, it's in many ways simpler, many ways more sophisticated, but it is the number one threat we face in this country. It's the number one threat you face as an organization, the financial institution or infrastructure of, of the country. So it's as, bad and as fast paced as ever. Although here are the optimists in me over these last, since I left the, the FBI where we built the cyber division, combination with DHS, FBI, working with the private sector, working with financial institutions, we've gotten much better, but we have a long, long way to go. So the threat you know, is, is, is strong or, or big as it's ever been. Our policies don't keep up. So it's up to us as operators to make sure we're secure and operators in your company to make sure you're secure. And then also working with others to get other ideas on how we can defend against this threat. But it's, it's I, don't, I don't think people understand how, how big it is. You're seeing it used in conflicts and in wars, infrastructure. This is a huge, huge problem for us. It is, it is. And I'm surprised and, and glad to hear they are an optimist because I am not given everything that I see out there. It feels like every day we walk into a dark alley and, and we have multiple people ready to, you know, attack us, let it be state-run sponsor or, or just individual criminals, right? So thinking about the cyber risk, 
that we face in our industry. Who are these cyber criminals that are attacking banks and, and our clients? Look, in the, in the early, early days, you know, when this really started to, to ramp up, you had state sponsors doing DDoS attack on some of the biggest financial institutions in the world, right? That was the early days. Hey, can we disrupt their business, right? And send a message to the U.S. and send a message to these banks that they're not immune to this. But you're still attacked and going to be attacked by the more four major state sponsors in the world. And when people say, well, why would Russia, why would Iran, North Korea, and China um, want to attack? They, we always get asked, why would they want to attack me? Well, do you have intellectual property that you build a product and that another country may want to steal and build a similar product and put you out of business? Sometimes it's as basic as that. But what we're finding more and more is that a lot of these state sponsors also coordinate and work with cyber organized criminal rings that are looking for financial gain that are also feeding information back to these state sponsors. So you have this um, organization, state sponsors teaming with cyber criminals to attack a lot of companies around the world, a lot of companies in the United States, small, medium, and large. Nobody is immune from healthcare, schools, education, police departments that are un unprepared, financial, you, you name it, especially in our big infrastructure space. Um, so really you have the, you have the big, you know, big three or four that are they're attacking. And then you have all sorts of, you know, Eastern Euro European organized crime groups that are doing it just strictly for financial gain, um, holding you ransom, you know, asking for payments in crypto and, and that type. Um, quite shocking, right? And we have transitioned and we continue to transition into more digital platforms, online, mobile banking. That's not just the banking industry, but but in general, all industries, right? And so for us, it has replaced somewhat the the corner branch and the you know person's you know face to face interaction of of us with our clients. How do you think this actually evolution has impacted and and what protections banks should implement? You know, I think it's it's not much different than we're doing in in and that we're helping a lot of companies do is that move in different areas to help make you make you more secure. And what is that? What does that mean? And at a basic level, um, organizations like yours and any company in the world, including us, is the first thing you have to decide, which is very difficult in today's age, because everything is being connected. Everything is being connected. Now you're going to 5G, where everything is going to be connected. You've got cameras, you've got IoT, right? Internet of Things, refrigerators. Um, you go to a company, and sometimes company, many companies don't even know what's attached to their network. So you got to figure out, the first thing you got to figure out is what is my network like and who is on it, who is connecting, what are all the different edge points or endpoints that I know that I could have vulnerabilities in. And many times that's the first thing companies need to do is they need to get visibility into everything that touches their network. And with remote work, that's actually increased exponentially, right? Even people working hybrid now, they're home on different laptops. Sometimes they sign in from their home computer, which many times is littered with malware because they don't have the same protections where you have, you know, you, you've got endpoint protection, you've got the anti-malware devices, you've got processes and people to monitor these things. I think that the, the second, well, first of all, going to a digital is great, right? There's so many convenience of it, but it does open up. Uh, these windows for other opportunities for them to attack. Because then it's, what is your software? Is it up to date? Is, is it the latest and greatest software? And are the vulnerabilities patched timely? Time and time again, every attack you can track back 
to some type of vulnerability in the software or platform that could have been patched, that wasn't patched in a, in a timely manner. That's what the adversary does. They look for known vulnerabilities and unknown vulnerabilities, and then they, they create an attack, whether it's through phishing, social engineering, and then, then they attack you, get into your organization, and, and seize your network and move laterally across it. A couple of things I would say for, for companies is you have to have some type, small, medium, and large companies at different levels, some type of a person. Large companies, financial institutions have chief information security officers. Some companies just have an IT director. He or she has to be versed. And, and the culture in the organization is this is one of the major risk companies face, right? When you look at a risk metrics for your company and management and the boards have to listen to what the risk is and, and CISOs and IT security directors need to explain it in, in layman's term what the risk is. And lastly, two things I would say uh, last is that the move to the cloud is good. Moving to the cloud with the right security around it, in my mind, is actually more secure than client-based server, right? It's just hard. It's just much easier in the cloud in today's world um, with all the tools, with the cloud providers, with the security mechanisms you can have in the cloud, with some AI and machine learning that, you know, you can be more secure. Moving your infrastructure there, moving your platform there, moving your, your um, software as a service. And with that, we as humans aren't going to be able to, to solve this. What I mean is we can't, financial institutions just can't keep hiring more people because humans don't work at network speed. You need to introduce AI and machine learning. We need our networks. We need humans to train the networks and the networks to respond to these attacks, to identify them and respond to these attacks. No, great, great answer. And, and a couple of things that stood out from what you said. Number one is, you know, vulnerabilities are identified and exploited, right? And those are known and just simple remediations and patching where we solve them. It's like, if you think you have a house, right? And you ensure that all of the doors are closed, but you don't close some of the windows, then you have that exposure and somebody can get through one of those windows, right? And so it's, it's not just, you know, making sure you identify all your uh, potential vulnerabilities, but you actually you need to patch them and close them. So that there's, there's, and it's a simple approach, right? It's not that complex, but then uh, you leave the door open for anybody to come in. Marcelo, I would add one thing to, you, to your, your story, which is a great story. A friend of mine told me this story many, many moons ago. Is you, you said it's, it's, you can equate it to the physical world. Everything you just said, and the one thing I would add is you also need a night watchman. Because even with all the locks, doors, and alarms, if they get in, they're in. And if you don't, if you don't have visibility of what's going on inside, then you're vulnerable as well. So adding that night watchman with the flashlight going around saying, hey, what's on my network? Even though I've got all the doors and all the windows locked, there's still a chance somebody can get in, right? Absolutely. And that's why I like my dogs. They will let you know when somebody gets in. So one of the, the, the items that you know, we have done at City National, in terms of our cybersecurity, we provide, for example, two-factor authentication for our clients, right? And that is uh, with the hope that it's gonna improve their, uh, their security and their safety. But what are some of the fraud or cybersecurity issues that our clients could still face? Look, I, I, I'm completely digital. And I, the, the one area that I'm, I'm so aware of, because it happens to me, I don't know if it happens, Marcel, it happens to you, I'm sure it happens to you where you work and others, but I get fished every single day. 
even through emails, you know, trying to spoof to be somebody else, trying to get my banking information. You get it. I have it. my Amazon account. I get a text that says, hey, we closed your Amazon account. Hey, hit, click this button and give us your credentials. And, you know, you're shut down until then. People, they just have to realize that's not how companies work. And I know, you know, responsible financial institutions like, like your bank and others, you know, really put out this news that, hey, we're not going to reach out to you for your credentials. We're not going to text you and ask you for your, your pins. Um, and But I, people are still falling for this because you and I both know that the number one um, attack vector for any company, doesn't mean financial institutions, is phishing. Someone getting an email or a text, clicking on it, going to a fake website, putting in their credentials, and then, so what happens when you when you click on one of these and you sign in? Now the bad actor not only has your sign in, but your password, and they can go right in and into your own account. You guys aren't even aware of it. Whatever company's not aware of it because those were stolen credentials, right? So I would say not only um, two-factor authentication, but multi-factor authentication, right? Um, many organizations are saying, okay, um, they're blocking if that's coming from Russia. Right, because we know that client Tim Murphy IP address emanates from Florida or emanates from somewhere else. And so I'm just using that as one example, but we really believe in multi-factor, right? So it's it's something you know, it's something you have, like, like your phone, and it's something you are, biometrics, right? The, the great thing about the Apple is, you know, you get into your phone um, through biometrics in, in many cases, and sometimes you have a pin, um, and sometimes it's tracked where the location is. So I would say the more and more we can go to multi-factor authentication using different mechanisms to secure uh, the mobile banking, the better we'll be. And I think the industry is moving towards, you know, not just two-factor, but multi, multi-factor. But it's still a risk. People need to just pay attention and not just click on these links that are coming from phony companies masquerading as financial institutions, shopping sites, and the like. No, great, great point. And it is like you said, it's it's a simple email that uh, comes with a link that you think is harmless, uh, that you think it comes from Amazon by they misspelled Amazon, and you click and then you open your your company to that criminal or you open your own personal finances to that potential criminal. So it's, it's watching after, and at City National, we do have phishing campaigns, uh, so to continue to train our people in, in learning about those simple little things that could have a huge impact on the institution and our clients. Now, we continue to move also quite rapidly to the adoption of contactless payments. Over the last couple of years, even more so, and. With, with that movement to contextless, do you think the, the risk of scheming has been reduced? And there's also other risk that might be associated with contactless options? Yeah, look, I, I think that's been, it's been effective. If you look at the statistics and facts of a fraud reduction, a card-based fraud reduction with, with the contactless, um, it's happening, right? First, it happened in, in Europe. We were up with the with the chip and pin, which they were a little bit ahead of us, and you saw it drop, uh, the fraud drop there. We institute a lot of that in the United States, and now we've been taking that to the next level, the contactless. Um, there are some slight risk in that, but they're they're higher end risk, right? Because a lot of those cards, if it gets stolen and you're not using a pin, right? The contactless could be just RFID, right? Radio frequency ID, and if that gets stolen, there's nothing 
really to to secure you. You can you can have some risk there, although you know there there are some, as you know, some banking protections you have when you get lost or stolen credit cards. Um, those type of thing, but if it's a debit card, uh, you know, much more dangerous because it goes right in, right into your account. You can clone the device. I mean, there's some high end cybersecurity, but I think if the question was, has this helped? Absolutely, skimming's been reduced. I mean, if you remember years ago, uh, ATMs was a big one that replaced the whole ATM and skim all your ATM cards. Uh, then gas stations and, and convenience stores were next, right? And you're you're seeing that actually not occur as frequently because we're going to contactless, multi-factor, you know, account numbers. If you look at uh, the various mobile payments, account numbers aren't shared, they're encrypted. Um, so yeah, we're, re- we're seeing much less fraud across the area. So it's the more and more we can continue that ecosystem, I think the better. There, there's always risk, just like you said, there's always a door somewhere between the end user, the, the rails that you ride on, and then the, the institution itself, the financial institution, there are some, risk in there but we're narrowing that gap yeah no that's a that's a great point and it just reminded me when we go to europe how do you how can you spot an american in europe it's because uh europeans have to use chip and pin americans only use chip and signature right we are the only ones who have to sign instead of actually entering our pins uh it's just different practices across different i guess geographies uh and i it it, it all waits in terms of the perception of what our clients are willing to accept or do uh, for their safety and security. Yeah, Marcelo, you, um, you you mentioned earlier the training, which I think we always stress that training is just so important. And you can reduce your risk to the, the, the human element, just training people what to look for. But, and, and you talked a little bit about that, which will, which will help you guys uh, limit the fraud for your end, end users and customers. But there's also this, Financial institutions also have this this issue of right. I mentioned cyber concierge, right? We're a concierge. You guys have concierge service, right? You want your customers to receive the quickest service, the best service, and the most secure service. How are you balancing that? The friction of security with the customer experience. Yeah, our our personalized client services. It's our secret sauce. It's what has made us very successful over the decades, and so. It's a balance that we have to achieve, but in my opinion, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, right? And actually, I think in the long terms, clients will appreciate and thank you for protecting their privacy, identity, and their hard-earned dollars. Great, great client service includes, I think, good fraud practices. Uh, however, you have to ensure that those don't get in the way of of a good client experience. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Where do you achieve that good balance between, like you said, multiple authentication factors uh, versus what the clients wants for a, a quick transaction, you know, fast service, be able to click and get it, right? And so it's that balance that we have to achieve. But in my mind, they're not mutually exclusive. It's just being able to find the right balance and we have to continue to leverage technology. Technology can be used for good or bad, right? Some of the cyber criminals and state-run sponsors, they use it for bad. We have to continue to use it for good. And that good comes to be able to give our clients the best personalized service that we can. But it, it also sometimes, a, a good, simple fraud practice means 
picking up the old phone and calling the client and asking, did you do this? Right? Was it you? We seen something odd. This is not your normal behavior. You know, the system alerted us, but we're not sure. And so pick up the phone and call the client and talk to him or her. And the clients in the long term will appreciate that, right? And so it's a it's a balance that we have to keep. Technology will keep moving, client expectations will keep moving, and cyber criminals will continue to also advance. And so they're not mutually exclusive. You have to write the you have to find the right balance. Yeah, very good. So now looking ahead, looking at, at, at the future. For example, we talked about it, right? Cyber criminals sometimes feels like becoming more complicated in some regards, but also still a simple approach. Even more so when we think about some of the unregulated areas like, like the crypto space. How do you see the training the financial security and cyber crimes increasing or decreasing in the next few years? You know, I mentioned earlier, it's the biggest threat we, we faced. I mentioned that, look, the trend is increasing both for profit, for influence, um, to get an advantage in conflict, right? You can take a small country, and if they've got a great, great cyber uh, offensive team, they can level the playing field um, in any type of environment uh, you're in. So that's going to that's gonna continue. And as we said, we keep using tech, people, and process, which has taken us so far, and we've, we've got to get back to AI, machine learning, compute power, the same thing that the bad actors are using. And so when it, when it comes to crypto, th- look, there's many things about crypto, just like the cloud, that are even more secure, right? The crypto, when you look at, now I'm not talking about the 10,000 maybe coins or scam coins that are out there, right? But when you look at the few that were built on the process of crypt- real crypto and cryptography, like the Bitcoins in the, of, the, of the world and, and how this compute power that makes it more secure and hash rates and those type of things, there's many things about uh, the blockchain. Let's, let's step back from crypto and the blockchain um, can be much more se- secure. And I think what you're going to see in the crypto space, it is still uh, a little bit of the wild, wild west, but I think you're seeing the United States government and government around the world starting to regulate. I mean, you're seeing a lot of things come out of this administration, um, both from an enforcement perspective um, and then also a regulatory perspective. You know, some of these big exchanges, you know, have to comport to the same, uh, you know, regulate regulators that you do, right? So New York DFS, um, you know, AML and CTF, right? Now, anti-money laundering for those that aren't familiar and counter-threat finance, you know, you're under regulatory uh, regime that has to make sure those things don't happen in your ecosystem, right? Or if they do, you're reporting it through suspicious activity reports and the like. No different than the crypto space. It will be regulated. Um, I'm hoping they think about it a little bit different instead of applying an old regime to a new technology and a new way of doing business in, in the future. But it's 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 still a huge problem. You're seeing crypto attacks and cyber attacks um, around the world um, and, a, and a lot of money going out the door to bad actors. You know, they can buy, and you know this, they many bad actors can can buy these tools online and these attack kits, right? So you can have some individual sitting, for lack of a better word, we've always used it, sitting in the basement somewhere of his parents' house and buy these tools online in these dark forums and attack attack us, right? And they're sophisticated, you know, attack tools that that they actually actually buy. You spent a, more than a couple of decades at, at the FBI. So you've seen firsthand, you know, how the government plays a role in protecting our citizens from, from cyber fraud. How do you think the federal agencies will monitor and 
prioritize bank fraud moving forward? And how would that impact us? You know, I always like to give a little, little history there. When I was still there, uh, you know, really the main threat, although cybersecurity was this rising trend, it was it was it was counterterrorism, right? Because I left the bureau uh, in in 2011. We started some public-private partnerships, but they were very immature. If you fast forward that to 2022, and your organization is probably involved in some of these, you have different sector groups getting together with the government, DHS, FBI, uh, CISA, the Cyber Infrastructure uh, Organization for DHS, and actually sharing information. And a lot of the financial institutions, infrastructure companies actually have a cleared person, so they can actually share write signatures or share threats that heretofore they were unable to do because they would often say that the the private company doesn't have the clearance to know. And what I've seen in the government over the last five, seven years is they've been able to work work around that because many times what they are classifying as a certain threat, many times it's already in the wild. Matter of fact, it might be attacking one of our companies now. And so we're seeing the same thing in an unclassified manner as the same as a classified manner. So there's there's a lot of different, there's a domestic security uh, advisory council, which, which the FBI and DHS coordinate um, with various sectors. DHS has their own you know, 16, 17 infrastructure uh, groups that they work with um, when it comes to you know, energy, financial, uh, nuclear, water, um, air, transportation, rails, um, and there's there's a lot more coordination going, going on between the federal government um, and the private sector than there ever has. We're still not where we need to be. You know, if you, if, you, if you look at the countries that we're up against, right, the state sponsors, their governments and their companies are one. They work hand in hand. That's not how the United States works. And so you have to figure out mechanisms, policies, agreements, to work with the private sector to share information back and forth real time. Um, the Bureau has a, has a training for, they bring in CISOs from the private sector um, and they go to Quantico, right? And they train um, with, the, with the government in many ways. And I think DHS has a similar program. Overall, I'm optimistic. It's gotten much, much better. It was extremely weak. I always said they were too narrow in many of the speeches I gave, you know, five, seven years ago. And that might be why you're an optimist because you have seen the evolution and uh, how uh, we continue to get better at mitigating the risk and minimizing the exposure. Are there any other areas of cybercrime that you don't think that get enough airtime and and we should pay more attention to? Look, I don't think we should scare people to death, but I I, I think for many years I often say, you know, if you were with a uh, you were a regular citizen and you there was an attack at a bank or your credit card was found in the dark web. You know, you, you, it really didn't impact you other than an inconvenience, right? The bank covered everything. Um, you get your credit card, then, you know, five to 10 days later. Now, if you want it, they send it to you right away. I don't think people understood how serious these cyber attacks were. And I think we've gotten, again, I think we've gotten better. I'm an optimist, I'm educating, but I still don't think we're there. I don't know if we really understand in this country how fragile we are in our infrastructure and national security. Because in this country, I mentioned, the government doesn't run the infrastructure, private companies, oil, gas, you saw the colonial pipeline. What if they shut down nuclear power plants, right? Which are independent, uh, you know, run by run by companies, not the government. Water, we've seen attacks by the Iranians on, on water, um, you know, companies in, in New York. Um, so you're seeing all these attacks on our infrastructure. And that's worrisome to me because 
um, we need to continue to shore those those areas up, rail, air. Uh, we saw uh, airlines attacked. I think there was a, a recent one. I think it was, a, I don't even want to say the company because I get, might get it wrong because you're reading all these attacks, but there was a recent airline a, a attack on an airline, hotels. And so it, it's a huge problem and it's happening every single day. And what's worse is we're only seeing the top part of it. What's happening that we don't know, right? What's happening with the adversaries in this country? So it's not to scare everybody. I just think it's, we have to, has to be an education and awareness that this is a national security threat for this country. Yeah, no, and, and you said it well, right? It's not to scare everybody, but for people to be aware, to be conscious, to take the right actions, to um, take the right training. It's not just our day-to-day -day activities and, and a few dollars, but it goes bigger than that. Like you said, it's it's national security and safety. You know what? At City National, we always said that it's, you know, securities, it's everyone's business. Every colleague has to play their part. What are one or two tips that you will give to our listeners or what actions do you recommend that they do in order to keep our information safe and secure? Look, I think you have the company aspect of it, and I'm going to give what I do, right? And I, I think because you're aware of this problem, I'm aware of this problem, is I'm constantly under attack from where I worked and what I do today through LinkedIn, through social engineering. So I think for the, the everyday person, it's it's the things that DHS puts out and, and your company probably, you know, think before you click, right? Think before you link, right? If you get something, it doesn't look right, scroll over where it's from, make sure that the address, the email address, um, is coming from the right domain. Beware of social engineering, right? You get messages. You're not going to win this cruise, right? They're not going to send you, the bank's not going to send you a, a, a text and email saying you just want a free cruise around the world for the rest of your life. If it's too good to be true, it is. It's the same thing our parents taught us, right? You know, nothing, nothing comes from free. Um, I really think for me, multi-factor authentication Keeping up, we, you and I talked about patches for, for corporate America. It's the same thing, you know, when, when that, those patches come out from, from Microsoft or Google or iOS, um, the Mac, um, I'm the first. I, I, you know, I try to, I get their beta. I, I want the updates right away. I want to stay ahead of the threat. So I think people even keeping their home software up to date, and you mentioned something very important that you guys already do, that multi-factor authentication, Right. Something you know, something you have, and something you are. People can remember that that's how you want to access. And here's where I think um, it's a big mistake everybody makes is not only just strong passwords, but rotate those passwords frequently, just like companies do, just like your company does. And then if I'm talking, this is all personal stuff. And then don't use that password across all sites because you may use your same password and sign on that you might use at a financial institution and you're using it in you know, some really weak company that's, uh, and I, whatever it may be, it might be, a, it might be a smaller online vendor and you're using the same there. You might be using the same at a, at a blog, right? Well, all those things are attacked in some form or fashion. They're all put into the dark web. And now somebody has your ID and your credentials. And what they do is they try to find out who you are and use that across your entire platform of what you, what you may be ac accessing. So, Multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, rotate them, keep your software up to date, and think before you link, right? Tim, those are great examples, great bits of advice. I mean, real 
life uh, activities that we do day to day and truly appreciate you giving us those tips and Tim uh, once again it has been a pleasure talking to you thank you thank you Marcel thanks for having me it was great to meet you as well Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you. 